Dr. Keener is going to share a brief presentation. The poor guy, this is something that he has written extensively on, he's spoken extensively on, and we've told him to pare it down to 20 minutes, which is just a, that will be a miracle in and of itself, I'm sure. So uh, go easy on the guy who's trying to cram years of research and thought into a very small amount of time, but he's gonna make just kind of initial presentation, some of his thoughts about miracles. As you're listening, um, text in whatever questions you have, or if you're you're watching on Facebook Live, which you are, um, you can also put your questions in the comments there. And then when he's finished, we're gonna have a large format group discussion where everybody will get to weigh in, including hopefully our friend Bryn Stacy, who will be joining us soon. Um, what else? I think that's really all I need to say by way of introduction. So I'm gonna go ahead and change the view here so that uh, Craig's picture will be bigger. And uh, Craig, go ahead and take it away for us. Thanks. This was this was 1,100 pages. Don't start counting my 20 minutes yet. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, but I, I ended up writing a, a book on miracle reports, mainly because I like to write commentaries in the New Testament. And well, there are a lot of miracle reports in the New Testament. So originally, I was doing this for historical purposes. But uh, I found, I mean, there's, there's miracle and exorcism accounts in every layer of, of early Christian tradition. So uh, all throughout the Gospels, um, throughout the Book of Acts, the Book of Revelation, uh, early church fathers talk about their witness of it. Even detractors of early Christianity acknowledged that these things were, were being reported among them and experienced among them. It, it raises two questions. One, can such reports come from eyewitnesses? And I will argue, well, we have hundreds of millions of people who claim to be eyewitnesses today. So yes, they can come from eyewitnesses. But then secondly, can these reports reflect special divine action? In other words, are they really miracles? Do they really come from God? Nobody would say that all of these are really special divine action, but well, many of us believe that many of them can be. Most people who deny that miracles ever happen uh, or at least can ever be shown to happen, are depending whether they know it or not. Sometimes they'll just say, well, we already know this. This has already been proved. They're, they're usually harking back to the argument of, of David Hume. Um, it's too bad I'm picking on him now because he's dead. And so this is a posthumous critique. Oh. I, hope, I hope this isn't too much humor. But anyway. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, Hume, Hume rehashed some older arguments. But Basically, and I am super summarizing his argument, but basically he says there's no credible eyewitnesses for miracles. It's, it's against uh, uniform human experience. Well, what happens when you have eyewitnesses? He says, well, <laughs> you can't believe them because it's against uniform human experience. That's kind of a circular argument and a lot of philosophers since then have critiqued him for that. But anyway, eyewitness evidence, which was what Hume didn't want to say we have a lot of, it's a form of evidence in sociology, anthropology, law, journalism, and of course, historiography. And in some of the cases today, we also have, have medical records. There have been major academic studies on this um, published by Oxford and, and others. There was a 2006 Pew Forum survey that was done of just Pentecostals and Charismatics in 10 countries, the countries ranged widely from the US, the Philippines, Korea, Kenya, and so forth. Well, in these 10 countries alone, 
and for Pentecostals and Protestant Charismatics in these 10 countries alone. The estimated total of these people who claim to have witnessed divine healing comes out to somewhere around 200 million people. Now, that's just for the Pentecostals and Charismatics. But as a control, the study also uh, examined people who were not, uh, who didn't claim to be Pentecostal or Charismatic or Protestant Charismatic. So among the other Christians, more surprisingly, somewhere around 39% in these countries claim to have witnessed divine healings. So we may be talking about something over one third of Christians globally who don't identify themselves as Pentecostal or Charismatic who claim to have witnessed these things. Presum presumably a number of them have you know, claimed to have witnessed them more than once. Even in the United States, 34% of Americans claim to have witnessed or experienced divine or supernatural healing. Now, uh, the point is not what proportion of these claims evolve genuinely divine activity or miracles. Nobody would say that all of them are, are special divine action. Uh, and I, the reason I specify special divine action or miracles, um, for those of us who believe in, in God who works in the world, a lot of things are divine action, but in terms of things that are uh, more dramatic and more attention getting in a sense. But the point is whether Hume can legitimately start from the premise that uniform human experience excludes miracles when you have hundreds of millions of people who claim to have witnessed these things. Now, if, if you can't start from that premise, and I think if Hume were writing today, Hume wouldn't start from that premise, then we need to explore the claims rather than dismissing them. <clears throat> uh, is this going in the right direction? Okay. <clears throat> Millions of non-Christians have been convinced. So it's not just people starting with Christian premises, but millions of non-Christians have been convinced by um, miracle experiences connected with Christian faith. So a number of them have changed centuries of their ancestral beliefs because of extraordinary healings. I mean, it wouldn't just be, oh, my headache went away, you know, after you prayed, like within a few days or <laughs> something like that. I mean, this was something that really got their attention, was really out of their ordinary experience that they would, they would change their, uh, their, their beliefs to such an extent. Some suggest that 70% of global Christian growth in the last few decades are due to this. China was not in the survey above, but one source from within the China Christian Council in the year 2000 said that over the previous two decades, about half of all conversions to Christianity were due to what they called faith healing experiences. In the house church movement, someone has estimated closer to 90%. There's no way to verify exact percentages, but these are people who weren't starting with Christian premises, who were so convinced that they became Christian. Dr. Balkrishna Sharma in Nepal suggested to me that about 80% of converts in Nepal were due to uh, healings and deliverance. And, and this isn't a new thing. This has been going on through, through much of history. Many of the church fathers claimed to be eyewitnesses of healings and exorcisms that were converting many polytheists. And according to Ramsey McMullen, who was a professor of history at Yale University, this was the leading cause of conversion to Christianity in the 300s. Um, it's, it's reported a lot through history. It was a very prominent feature of the Korean revival 
of the of the early 1900s. And I could give lots of other examples. Uh, now that two of you have told me that you're Methodist, I regret leaving out the um, the slide with John Wesley uh, and his reports. But anyway, uh, John Wesley had had plenty of reports too. But going on to some individual examples. Pastor Israel was one of my seminarians from India, and through prayer for the sick, his Baptist church grew from a handful of people to about 600, all of them from non-Christian backgrounds. He said most, most of the people didn't become Christians when they experienced healing, but that about 600 of them did. Um, uh, a student recently shared with me, a doctoral student, that his family became Christians when his father, who was dying, was healed when they prayed to Jesus. Ebi Baron Branch, who was my MDiv student, is now doing a, a PhD uh, near Chicago. He shared with me, he worked with somebody named Bari Malto. And before he worked with him, Bari had been a shaman, but he contracted leprosy and he was cast out of his village. But uh, a couple Christians came and prayed for him. And that night he had a dream in which an angel touched him and he woke up in the morning completely free of the leprosy, went back into the village, the entire village was converted. And by the time Ebi got to there to work with him, about half the region had become Christian. Douglas Norwood, uh, he talks about this in his dissertation, uh, his experience with this and also shared it with me when I interviewed him. He was ministering in Nickery, Suriname. Now, Nickery, Suriname obviously has a lot of Christians, but Nickery only had a couple hundred Christians, and this had been true for a few hundred years. Well, Douglas Norwood was a Moravian pastor. He was ministering uh, in, in a church there. And uh, to make a long story short, there was a, a, a Hindu man who was brought into the service and he was paralyzed on his right side. And he had been paralyzed all his life. He was maybe in his seventies or his eighties. And he started shouting, you know, my gods can't heal me, your God can't heal me. And, and he starts defying the Christian God and all of a sudden his right hand sh shoots up in the air. He was converted people around him were converted. And over the next few years, tens of thousands of people in Nickery Suriname became Christians. Eyewitnesses, some of whom I know, including some fellow seminary professors, I wasn't able to travel there myself, although I'm corresponding with some of the people there. They report the healings of deaf non-Christians, hundreds of deaf non-Christians in Jesus' name in Mozambique, uh, often uh, leading leading to the starting of churches in completely unchurched areas uh, right afterwards. It was documented with medical tests that this was happening, uh, deafness and blindness being healed, published in Southern Medical Journal in September of 2010. Now, you wouldn't be surprised to know that on the internet, there was a good bit of um, pushback on that. Testing conditions in rural Mozambique are not, not ideal, but Professor Candy Gunther Brown from Indiana University answers the critics of that study in one of her chapters in the book, Testing Prayer, published by Harvard University Press in 2012, as uh, 
well, she was a witness. She was there and she gives, I think, pretty convincing evidence. So there, there are a number of other uh, examples we could give. One of them is uh, Lisa Larias. She had reticulum cell sarcoma of the right pelvic bone. She had cancer of the hip. She didn't know that she was dying. Her parents hadn't told her yet, but they took her to uh, a healing meeting. And whatever you think of healing meetings, it doesn't really matter too much in this case because nobody actually laid hands on her and prayed for her individually. It was just in that atmosphere. She suddenly jumped up out of a wheelchair and began running around. This wasn't a momentary burst of adrenaline because, um, well, technically she shouldn't have been able to do that at this point, but also because, uh, you know, she, she walked, she, she, she came home walking, pushing her wheelchair, which she hadn't been able to do, obviously. And not only was her cancer completely gone, but x-rays afterwards showed that her bones that had been eaten away by the cancer were now healed. And uh, the, the doctor who reported this notes that she ran up a whole bunch of flights of stairs uh, while, while uh, they were together. Well, he took the elevator, but anyway. Barbara Comiskey Snyder, doctors had sent her home to die. She had a very severe case of multiple sclerosis. And after 15 years in and out of the hospital, doctors said she's not gonna be coming back to the hospital again. So she couldn't breathe without a machine helping her diaphragm. She, she was blind. She, she says she was curled up like a pretzel. Some people were praying for her and suddenly uh, she jumped out of her bed. And remember her muscles can't move, she can't jump, but she, she says she heard a voice saying, my child rise up and walk. She jumped out of the bed and the first thing she noticed was that, that her hands were no longer curled up. Well, no, first thing she noticed was her feet were flat on the floor. Second thing she noticed was her hands were no longer curled up. Third thing she noticed was she was seeing these things and she actually ran to greet her father. Now, uh, one of her doctors wrote about this. The other two doctors, I consulted them directly and they both shared with me, yes, this had to be a miracle. There's no other way. This wasn't just a short-term thing. I mean, in a sense, all healings in this life are temporary, but this was 1981 and she's had no recurrence of this since then. Greg Spencer, was blind due to macular degeneration. He was already on disability for his blindness, 2,400 in one eye, 2,200 in the other eye. He went to a retreat for the healing of his mind. Now he wasn't praying for the healing of his eyesight. He was praying for the healing of, of his, his mind. But when he was experiencing the healing of his mind, he opened his eyes and his eyesight was, was healed. Uh, and the other people who were there with him give testimony about um, just how he was going around looking at, at license plates, reading them so excited. But in this case, we have the medical documentation because, we, well, he had to get it because he had been on disability. He told the Social Security Administration, no, uh, I, I shouldn't be on disability anymore because uh, I'm no longer blind. They said, wait a minute, macular degeneration doesn't just undegenerate. So they said, uh, we're gonna to have to investigate you for fraud. <laughs> so because of this, you know, 
he had to collect all the medical documentation. I actually have the, the forms without the names crossed out, but I had to cross them out for HIPAA laws. And finally, you know, all the documentation was there. And after a year of, of study, the Social Security Administration said, um, you are, you've received a remarkable return of your visual acuity. You are no longer qualified for disability. So had to go back to work. Downside to everything. Um, Dr. Chauncey Crandall uh, reports a number of things, but one of them was he was um, he, well he, he was a cardiologist in West Palm Beach. There was a man named Jeff Markin who was basically flatlined for 40 minutes in the ER. They couldn't revive him. Uh, Dr. Crandall signed the death certificate, was going back to make his rounds, felt led by the Spirit of God to go back and pray for the man to have a second chance to know the Lord. Obviously, this is unusual. The vast majority of people everywhere who die stay dead. But anyway, he, he goes back. He, he told me that he, uh, as he prayed for, for the man to have a second chance to know the Lord, the nurse was glaring at him like he was crazy. But they shocked him with the paddle one more time after the prayer. Normally, you would have just you wouldn't have a normal heartbeat even if, after it stops for like two minutes or one minute, but suddenly he had a normal heartbeat. Now, six minutes with no oxygen, you end up with irreparable brain damage starting in. But Jeff Markin didn't have irreparable brain damage. And in fact, here's Dr. Crandall participating in Jeff's baptism. And now they go around and show the testimony. Dr. Sean George, uh, do I have like five minutes left? How, how close am I to? my time. Yeah, you, you, five minutes is great. That's great. Okay, right. I should have looked when I started, but okay. So Dr. Sean George, he's a consultant physician in Kalgoorlie, Australia. He was having a heart attack. And unfortunately, well, one thing you don't want to do if you're a doctor and you're having a heart attack, you don't want to read your electrocardiogram reading because then you'll really, really have a heart attack. He went into full cardiac arrest and 55 minutes, 4,000 chest compressions, 13 shocks. By the time his wife got there, he had been, uh, he'd been dead for an hour and 25 minutes. As far as his heart was concerned, he was dead. All his organs were shutting down. Um, his wife, who was also a doctor, prayed for him. All of a sudden, his heart springs back to life. And his colleagues, most of whom were Hindu or Muslim, they, they sprang back to work, you know, doing their best for him, but thinking, oh no, this is really gonna be bad because sooner or later, she's gonna to have to now disconnect him from life support because you know, he's, he's got irreparable brain damage. But three days later, he awoke with no brain damage and the Hindu and Muslim doctors were witnesses. This was a miracle. Um, he is a doctor, well, was, he knew how to get his documentation. He has all the defibrillator logs. This is the one that really got my attention though. It's not the most dramatic. I mean, I have other accounts that were like eight hours or, or longer, but this one really got my attention for reasons that you'll soon understand. Antoinette Malambe was my mother-in-law. Oops, I just gave away why you soon understand it. Anyway, <laughs> this, is, this is why this one got my attention. Um, I'd already heard the story from my wife, but uh, I had I, I needed to interview Antoinette Malambe. So I, uh, I, you know, she told me about her daughter Therese when she was two years old. 
she cried out that she was bitten by a snake. And she, uh, her mother got to her. There was no medical help available in the village. So she strapped her to her back and ran to a nearby village where family friend Koko Ngoma Moise was doing ministry. He was, uh, you know, he was a minister, he was a family friend. He prayed for Therese. Therese started breathing again. The next day she was fine. So I asked Intimate Malambe, how long was she not breathing? And she had to stop and think to get from this hill to that hill and this village to that village. She said, about three hours. Now, I mean, she didn't know six minutes with no oxygen, irreparable brain damage starts in. I got so many accounts like this um, from, from different parts of the world. But of course, this one, it, Therese is my sister-in-law. <laughs> she has a master's degree. She just finished, uh, recently retired as, as a pastor in Congo. Um, so that got my attention. Uh, and, and unless we're, we're burying a lot of people prematurely, uh, how often would we misdiagnose death? I mean, I know it happens sometimes, but I know 10 people in my immediate circle or my wife's immediate circle who are witnesses of, of these kind of things happening. And oops, oh, that's right. I have to push it this direction. So it just means to me like it would be really improbable as a, as a coincidence. Um, now, nature miracles, oh, I'm just gonna give you one example uh, that I got this semester from one of my doctoral students. Uh, when he was in Fiji many years ago, uh, there, there was a, a cyclone that was coming. He was on a boat that was already heading to an island and it was, it was too late to, to turn back, the, the, um, the winds were so strong, the captain's chair broke and fell. So he said the captain pointed to a young woman sitting in the back of the boat, a woman from Fiji, who was wearing a Christian t-shirt. He said, uh, he motioned her to come to the front, pointed to the floor, instructed her to pray. She prayed, the rain stopped, the sun emerged, and then after dropping them off, the captain <laughs> rushed back to the main island. The moral of this story is, if you're gonna wear a Christian t-shirt, you better be ready to be called on to pray. And I think I think my 20 minutes is surely up by now, so. It is, uh, but I mean, I could just listen to these stories for forever. Um, <laughs> as you're exiting out of the screen share, before we kind of go back to our full panel and take questions, and we did get some questions coming in, I'd love if you could just maybe take, I don't know, a minute or whatever to give us um, just kind of your brief, off the cuff response to every almost everything you talked about were miracles in the world today or in recent years. Can you give us just kind of an off the cuff? What are your thoughts on the miracles in the Bible? So, oh, those are my favorite. Okay, well, those are some of my favorite too. But um, you know, people will try to dismiss them sometimes, and we've got questions coming in about that. But just like first blush kind of response to those. Yeah, the reason I was dealing with the modern ones is that. Uh, one of the main objections to the biblical ones is to say, well, uh, if miracles really happened back then, then we'd see the same thing happening today. And so that's been a traditional argument. Hume, that was one of his major arguments. And so um, I was just responding to that. That was the incible argument about miracles. As to the argument about eyewitnesses, um, the gospels actually are written 
well, all the first century gospels are by definition from within living memory of Jesus' public ministry. So in terms of ancient biographies, ancient biographies, especially in the uh, early Roman Empire, were supposed to be based on pre-existing information. You weren't supposed to make up new events for the, you, know, you had some flexibility, but not like making up new events. And within living memory, chances are the events that, that people remember, especially, well, living memory, the way that's used in oral historiography, when the eyewitnesses are still alive or the people who knew the eyewitnesses are still alive, the expectation is that most of that information, most of the events reported are actual events. And we do have it reported in every layer of early Christian tradition. Also the detractors of early Christianity mention these things as well. Now, I'm, I'm dealing with the historical question. If you wanted me to deal with the theological question, you have to give me another minute. No, and, and all of the other people on the panel are probably itching to answer some of these questions too. And we have so many coming in. So I think I'm just gonna dive in just as a reminder, our panelists all know this, but um, you know, one of the things Theology on Tap really prides ourselves in is that we can disagree charitably with each other. So I think we're, we're kind of all over, we're not all over the spectrum tonight. I think everybody on the panel tonight would say they believe in miracles, but how we define that and how we kind of, uh, you know, couch that and nuance it might be a little bit different. So I think maybe one of the first things is to kind of define some of our terms. Um, I remember being in a Bible study one time and someone asking me what a miracle was and just off the cuff what I said was and I kind of stand by this. Um, I'm curious how you would answer and how other people on the panel would answer just what is a Christian miracle or a miracle. Um, I said it was something where the laws of nature were suspended that pointed to Jesus slash God. Um, how might you guys define a miracle and one of the questions that came in as you're defining it said what are miracles evidence for? Are they evidence for theism, Christianity, some supernatural realm? That's a question from Facebook. So let's just kind of define our terms. Anybody that wants to answer can kind of throw something out there and then like, what are they evidence for? Well, I mean, I can comment on that. I, th I think very simply, a miracle is an event having a supernatural cause. Uh, I'll kind of leave it open as to what it's evidence for. I think you have to, I think that that's a different question. You kind of have to uh, evaluate that situation. But I would want to note that while a miracle may disrupt or overpower the natural order, uh, as I'm sure we're going to discuss, that's, that's different from actually violating a natural law or creating some kind of logical contradiction, uh, which would have been something that, that Hume would have pressed. So, for example, if Jesus multiplies two fish into thousands, he doesn't, you know, violate the laws of arithmetic such that one fish plus one fish equals 5,000 fish. He just creates more fish uh, and perhaps ex nihilo. Um, so that, that would be the one distinction I would add. If you start throwing around Latin terms, I'm going to have to help people. Out of nothing. Anybody else want to say anything about kind of how we're defining our terms or maybe what they're evidence for? Are they just evidence for something or are they evidence for the Christian God? I think that they're evidence of something non-natural. Um, I'd, I'd say on, on top of that, I don't, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if Taylor would disagree with this, 
but just I think I'd, I'd say one thing differently, which is that when we're, for, for a lot of folks, I, I suppose they would hear the word supernatural and might think sort of like, you know, a, a non-human superior to human things. So like angels or demons or something like that or, or other, other things. Um, I would tend to use, I mean, it, because God's the uncreated creator, everything is natural that's not the activity of God, right? So if it's an angel doing something, in the sense of nature, it's it's a it's an aspect of created yeah. nature working in in obedience to God's own activity. Um, so I I don't think I would disagree with Taylor sort of um, you know it, 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 essentially, um, but terminologically I I might um, talk about nature and supernature differently. Um, and, but would certainly agree and say the same way in which he said, uh, you know, they're not violations of uh, like some sort of logical contradiction within, within, within the natural order. They are using the raw material um, in, in, a, in, 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 in a certain way. Um, for, for, with respect to the question of what they're evidence for, that's a great question. And no, I don't think, I mean, it, in one sense, uh, because God is the uncreated creator and everything is under his jurisdiction, everything is in some sense a sign that goes back to him. But in the sense in which the question is asked, I think, um, is, all, is all sort of supernatural spiritual activity evidence of or a sign or a pointer to uh, an uncreated creator? Uh, no. I mean, a lot, a, lot of, um, a lot of wonder workers would work their wonders in pursuit of a claim that they are, the, the, that the person who's working the wonder is, you know, sort of the guy you should follow or that their God is the God you should follow or whatever. That's so no, I don't think, that, I gonna, don't think every experience of a, a wonder or a sign is, is evidence of that. Let me, I'm going to use that as a segue because we got another question similar to that. So, and by the way, I'm putting these in the chat box for those of you that are just on our panel, if you want to read them. So let's keep this going. But the, the second question is, if we're to take even a fraction of Christian miracle claims as legitimate, which of course the presentation, that was the claim, right? How do we understand miracle claims of other religions? I mean, I guess if you're gonna, it, it's a great point. If you're gonna say, yeah, these seem amazing and there's no explanation other than God, then what about when Hindus say it's our God or you know Muslims or whatever? So thoughts on that? Oh, let me ask it one more time so our audience can hear. If we are to take even a fraction of Christian miracle claims as legitimate, how do we understand miracle claims of other religions? Well, if nobody's going to jump in, um, this this is, I think, why I left it open as to what it's evidence for, uh, because you know it it I think is is um, possible that people of other faith do experience, you know, supernatural activity. And it's the working out of that where we differ. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't think that we have to conclude that people who have uh, experienced miracles that are from different faith traditions, I don't think we have to conclude that those are delusional. Yeah, I would agree with Taylor. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's beyond our, it, it, it's things beyond our comprehension. You know, I looked at a miracle, I looked at the, you know, just, just tried it out, looked at the definition of what a miracle is uh, on the, uh, on the Google machine. And this comes from the Oxford languages and it's a noun, a surprising and welcome event that is not 
explicable by nature or scientific laws. And like, I'm fascinated with the use of welcome. And maybe Dr. Keener can speak more to this. Are all miracles welcomed? Uh, are, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I, like, I, I've heard, I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff I hear about, you know, the miracles I've heard of demon, like demonic stuff and some, and some other things. And then also I would, I would argue like, are all, are, are all miracles, physical miracles. I think a lot that Dr. Keener shared were physical shifts and changes. Uh, uh, but it, you know, and, and there are, but obviously heart changes as well. But I, I, I wonder, you know, is it a miracle that we wake up every morning? No. Like, no, it's not a miracle that we wake up every morning. He uses coffee. <laughs> What we were going to talk about tonight is that the word miracle is so overused. People say every breath is a miracle. No, it's not. It can be a blessing. It can be a gift, grace, but it's not a miracle if it's defined the way we've been defining it up until this moment. And so, yeah, it actually really annoys when people are like, I got a great parking spot. What a miracle. Stop with that. No. Yeah. Words, words kind of mean what they're used to mean in a given language. And for miracles, it's all over the place. Hume was the one who really introduced the violation of nature, you know, uh, developing some deist arguments. But his definition doesn't actually fit a lot of the miracles in the Bible. So, um, I mean, most of the miracles in the Bible aren't, they wouldn't be seen as violations of nature. Maybe the virgin birth, the resurrection, the creation to begin with. But, I mean, in terms of, a lot of the healings and so on, they, they don't have to be defined that way. Um, in terms of what they would be signs, uh, signs for, uh, actually the, the word that's translated miracles most often in the New Testament, it just means acts of power. Mm. Uh, but the word signs is a little bit closer to the way we've been using the word miracle. Mm. So there's divine action in the world around us, but special divine action, something that's extraordinary. Not, not God's usual way of working, something that's dramatic, something that gets people's attention. But that, that term also, the term that's translated that way also is used in, in the Bible, both for divine actions and also for those of other spirits and so on. And in terms of those in other religions, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, a, a miracle is meant to get your attention. It's not the proof that a certain thing is right because we have signs, so to speak, in various places. <clears throat> and you can have, well, actually Protestants and Catholics a long time ago, they used to use this against each other. Catholics would say, look, we have these miracles. Protestants would say, we don't believe those. But I mean, Protestants, Catholics are both Christian. And so when these signs occur among Catholics or Protestants or Orthodox, they're, they're still pointing to the, to the same God. Um, but to, to give one more example, and then I'll shut up because I know I'm talking too long. My, my mother-in-law, uh, well, both of, both of my parents-in-law, they, they were raised in polytheistic homes and, and they became Christians later uh, before, before my wife was born. And my mother-in-law one time, she was crossing a log in a, in a big river and she slipped off it, she fell into the water, and she was, she was about to drown when she felt a hand 
pick her up and put her back on the log. And she looked around and there was no one there. And she decided some, some spirit must have saved me. Well, when she became a Christian, she said, ah, now I understand that was God. Yeah. And, and, but she wasn't a Christian at that time. Mm -hmm. God cared about her. That's right. Amen. Hey, this is random, but just while I'm thinking about it, because I'll regret it later, we need some evidence and proof that Dr. Keener was really with us tonight. So will you guys all smile? I'm going to really quick take our picture. Everybody look cute. One more. Okay. Um, I'm going to Photoshop some here. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to move us to a question about biblical. Oh, Paul, did you want to say something? You're mute. Who's what's happening? Okay. I can't hear Paul. Can y'all? Nope. Paul's not muted though. Paul, something funky is going on with your thing. It's not muted, but we can't hear you. You it's may a miracle out and come back in. But somebody else say something so I can make sure it's not just him. Taylor? No, I, 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 I can hear him either. Okay. Yes, Paul, I want you to leave and come back. Um, that's my best, that's my IT skills right there. Like, turn it off and on. This is all I know. Um, so Dr. So Dr. Keener, just because because you brought that up and we're looking for a little, you know, a time for Paul to transfer back on. So, um, you know, I would never, I, I don't know your mother-in-law. And I would never second guess her thoughts or opinions. My, but my question goes, like, when we start dancing in the territory of, okay, your mother-in-law fell off a log and landed in the water and eventually was able to come out of that drowning. And she later equated it to God uh, and, like, her thankfulness to that. My fear goes into a place of, like, what happens to the people who fall off the log and don't come back up from water? Are they, did they, was, was that, was that God too? And what kind of cruel God would let that person drown? And like, it goes into like a little theodicy stuff. And I don't know, I mean, like, maybe that's a question someone's going to ask eventually. And I would just like to hear that, like that fine line of miracles and theology, theodicy. And you might say it's not a fine line, but like, that's where I sort of dance in the, on that fine line of like, what is theodicy and what is a, what is miraculous? in that mix. Does that make sense at all? Let me just yeah. say those listening that don't know what the, what the word theodicy means, it's just how we think about pain and suffering and how God interacts with those things. But go ahead, if, if Dr. Keener or anybody else wants to tackle this and then we'll go another direction. Can you all hear me? Yes, thank yes. you. Yes. It, it is one of the main, the main, I mean, you've got intellectual objections to miracles, but I think even more often you have the existential question as to why did it happen for them and it didn't happen for me or it didn't happen for this person. Um, my wife and I have been through a series of miscarriages oh. and uh, on somewhat less serious note, uh, I, I normally wear glasses. I have, well, I'm bald and my students think there's something else wrong with my head. But anyway, um, when we speak of miracles as special divine action, that means it's, it's distinct from the ordinary, the usual, the way things go in the world. We don't usually need to be persuaded that death exists and suffering exists because it's all around us. And everybody, including Jesus, although he rose from the dead, but everybody who's ever lived before our generation has died. 
Uh, so so that, that is a normal part of life, and it's recognized as such in, in the Bible. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's, the, the Bible does give um, reasons why the world is, is the way it is. But also, I think when, it, when you have Jesus doing, doing miracles as signs of the kingdom, like he says, when John the Baptist says, are you the one to come or should we look for somebody else? You know, I thought you were going to baptize in fire. I don't see any fire here. And Jesus gives um, this, this answer through uh, John's disciples. He says, go tell John the things that you've heard and seen. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is preached to the poor. And he's, he's echoing language from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Passages that in context are talking about the, the promised restoration, uh, that, that there's going to be a time in the future when there's going to be no more sickness, there's going to be no more death. God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. But rather than, than God just saying, okay, uh, you'll just have to believe that for now, he gives us signs. And so the, the blindness, the, the deafness, the, these incidents of healing in Jesus' ministry were, were, were a foretaste of the promised kingdom, the, a foretaste of the promised resurrection. And as such, they're, they're meant to remind us of something so that if, if God does a miracle for anybody, it's not it's not a blessing just to that person alone, mm -hmm. but to all of us, because it's a reminder of that promised time of restoration to which we all look forward, not least in the season of Advent. Taylor, you wanted to say something? Yeah, you know, and I, I, I thought it was covered really well, but I just wanted to build on this idea that it, I think it's kind of important to understand uh, where somebody who raises that objection is coming from. Because if that question is intellectual in nature, kind of as Dr. Keener was saying, then you know there's a number of directions that <clears throat> we could go. And I think you know one is that the the presence of suffering does not you know rule out God's goodness or grace, or that He does a miracle for one person and not another one. And to maintain that kind of a claim, you would have to show that it's it's not possible for God to have morally sufficient reasons to allow some people to suffer and to heal other people. And I, I just think as finite persons, we're in no position to, to claim that kind of knowledge. And, uh, you know, likewise, it sometimes that objection kind of presents itself as, you know, but okay, so why is there so much suffering then? Surely this is too much. There would be less suffering if, if God was really good, which is what this objection kind of boils down to. Uh, but again, if we don't know the, the full purpose of the design, then it's hard for us to claim that we can know completely that the amount of suffering that we see is gratuitous. And then much more likely is it, it's the kind of uh, emotional uh, ob objection that's, that's behind this kind of a question. And um, then I think it's just as Dr. Keener was saying that you know the, the promise of Christianity is that all things are gonna be put right. And I think that you know any worldview that that we have um, should aspire to, to answer this question because this is one of the most important questions that we face as people is you know um, yeah, meaning and a solution to, to pain uh, 
And I think that Christianity has a good answer. It's a huge question. So we may have to come back to this question later because um, some of the other questions that are being asked are pointing toward this. And I personally have some a current stake in this question as well. As some of you know, I recently had tragedy in my life and my brother passed away a couple months ago. And when I hear Christian songs at church about how God, you know, is has victory over death and these kinds of things, even though I know that's true, I think, well, we prayed. We prayed for a miracle, nothing happened. Um, so it's even strong believers can think, well, yeah, wait a minute, what? So we have some questions for later on about like, is it presumptuous to even ask? Just some people dwell on it so much that they make that into an idol. But before we get to that, I wanna break it up a little bit by going into some like biblical questions and then back to some, some of these kind of emotional theological questions. So um, the one I'm gonna pitch to you guys next is about the whole Red Sea thing. Here's what it says. And then I'll put it in the chat box. It says, I've heard that the parting of the Red Sea was really just a mistranslation of the Sea of Reeds and could have happened due to completely natural means. But the Bible author has painted it out to be miraculous because it kept up the narrative. What do you think? I'll read it one more time because not everybody is, of course, on the chat. Um, so those listening can hear it one more time while you guys think of your answer. But I've heard that the parting of the Red Sea was really just a mistranslation of the, quote, Sea of Reeds and could have happened due to completely natural means. But the Bible's, Bible authors painted it out to be miraculous because it kept up the narrative. Oh, this question has a lot of bias in it. What do you think? The, the Hebrew does say yam suf, and suf can mean, well, actually there's a debate about this, but uh, many scholars do, do believe it means sea of reeds. But for the Israelites to get through and the Egyptians not to get through who were pursuing them, I mean, the timing, if nothing else would be, would be miraculous. And Exodus 14 doesn't say, by the way, it's a violation of nature. It says that God sent a strong east wind and blew the sea back. Um, some people have argued for, uh, you know, in terms of natural causes, there is a case of wind set down that can actually separate or, or uh, open places and bodies of water. But, um, <clears throat> but again, the timing of it, you know, whatever means God used, including the one, you know, East Wind that's mentioned in the Bible, the, the timing would have to be miraculous to be, uh, now no, this is for those of us who actually believe that it happened, but yes. So there's, there's an old joke that a guy was sitting on a park bench reading a Bible and he jumped up saying, oh my gosh, it's miraculous. God um, sent this, huge wave and uh, parted the sea and the people crossed through and the, and the guy says, actually that's the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. It's really only six inches deep. It wasn't that much of a miracle. And the guy sits back down and sick, like a minute later, he jumps back up and he goes, oh my gosh, it's a miracle. And the guy goes, what? And he says, God drowned the entire Egyptian army in six inches of water. And the thing is like, however, I think the, the heart of this question is, is it miraculous? if it's still within nature, right? Is it miraculous is it, if it is still within the natural, if there is a still a natural explanation for it? Um, 
and I think this this touches on the on the nature of what is a miracle, right? So Sarah, you were going back to like what is a, what is a miracle, and this is going to get to how you define that. Um, but I think if we push miracle to it cannot have any natural explanation whatsoever, we're going to push miracle right out of the ballpark, because I think God often does work within the natural explanations. Um, and that's how he works. And if we're going to say that it's only a miracle, if there is absolutely no natural cause for it whatsoever, then we're going to, we're going to find ourselves outside of the realms of God, God's activity pretty quickly. I would also say that perhaps we can say that God's activity and miracle are not always like necessarily perhaps is a bit of a Venn diagram. Um, God can act in ways that aren't necessarily miracles. Um, but uh, but to say that it it has to be God only if there is no absolute natural explanation for it, I think it's going to push us out of the realm of the, many of the ways in which God acts. Well, if you, my well, kid is being very noisy right now, so I'm going to mute. That's myself. okay. Um, you know, Frank Turek says that the greatest miracle of all time was not the resurrection; it was the creation. And if you think about that being this amazing miracle from nothing to something, then everything in nature is under God's uh, power and control. And so him using nature, him not using nature either way is a display of his power. Paul, what were you going to say? Um, this is a robbed joke. I don't remember who wrote it, but someone said that Jesus's best miracle is having 12 friends at the age of 30. Sorry, I, I don't remember who's, it's from a tweet. I'm sorry. I don't know who said it. Um, Jarbo, did you say that? He did Way to go, man. In one of our theology on taps, yeah. I appreciate that. Hey, um, so what I was going to say, though, um, less jocularly, was that um, nature itself, again, this is one of those sticky terms. I mean, what are we talking about when it, the way that nature should work or something like that? The way that nature works is just the way that it works. Every, stuff, stuff works toward an end. And so when nature works toward an end, that's when it's working as it should. So whenever nature works toward the end that God directs it, we can call it a miracle, but it's just nature operating under God's intended design. So that's the whole, this is the category breaks down, it seems, whenever we're talking about an uncreated creator and everything else being constantly contingent upon him. So I know you don't like the joke about like, oh, I found a parking spot, it's a miracle. But the point is, is that everything is contingent upon, upon God's own activity and sustenance. And so, and so, because everything is on the contingent spectrum, spec, everything, everything that exists, um, besides sort of God as the uncreator, exists on a spectrum of dependency on God's own sustaining activity, such that it's all just a, a spectrum of miracle. It's all just a spectrum of God's activity directing or not directing something. And so whenever the wind, whenever the Red Sea or whatever parts so that so that the Egyptians can go across it, that's it's it was already existing and operating under the activity and contingency of God's own creative will. It was then working under his will for a given purpose. That's why I think the language of sign is so important here. And going back to the original question of what is a miracle for or a miracle? I mean, actually, I think the word miracle is just unhelpful here. I mean, the word that we're always translating in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament is sign for Samion and dunamis for power. Um, wonder working or what we'll talk about it. And so um, I may have opened a can of worms that I won't actually be able to uh, 
respond to, but um, intelligently, I've probably tapped out my intelligence there. Um, but it seems that when we're talking about the way that nature works, we often use the language of should in an odd way, it seems to me, because we're acting as if we assume it should work in a, in a certain way or not. Um, anyway, I'll probably start repeating myself now. So I'll yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of everything being on this continuum of contingency. And I, and I tend to agree, except there has to be some, if we don't like the word miracle, that's fine, but there has to be some kind of distinction between uh, you know, the sun lasting for an extra day so Joshua could finish his battle or Jonah getting swallowed by a fish is different from I found a parking space. And by the way, me finding that parking space means someone else was relegated to a crappy parking space. I mean, those two things, there is a distinction there. One is whether it's using the laws of nature, suspending them or however you want to say it, it's, it's out of the ordinary. Is yeah, I think it was Dr. Keener that, that said- the distinction between the way something typically works over against- Right. Just distinguishing typical and ordinary, not, not bo both are under God's. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I just wanted to point out that I think I could make it even more foundational than the goal directedness of nature. And that is uh, our very faculties of reason seems to me if they operate purely along, you know, natural laws, then there's no way for us to escape this kind of genetic determinism. Uh, and if you don't go for that environmental determinism. So if we are free agents thinking and reasoning freely, then there's something, there's some component of us that is not fully determined or, or you know, dictated by the laws of nature. Um, but yeah, th I thought um, that was a helpful distinction that you made, Paul, and that it's, it's what we're talking about is really something that uh, is different than the way God ordinarily operates. And I think Taylor, what, what is, what we don't realize right now, we realize in in that in that kingdom to come, like what we don't fully have full grasp of, we all know that. So, like I would say, I have a spectrum of suspended reality. Like I don't I don't think the Red Sea really split, and that doesn't affect my Christian faith. That doesn't affect the way I believe and live into Christ. Like the uh, for me, like. The Red Sea splitting uh, for uh, the Israelites is closer to the car spot uh, 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 than probably the the birth the uh, the uh, resurrection of Christ is. Like, well, I just like that. That's where the they are on this continuation. I mean, the continuum for you. But okay, but you're bringing up an interesting. I mean, colleagues, we have so many questions, and and what that's pointing to is I was. This isn't the one I was going to go to next, but. Somebody asked, why does it matter if the miracles in the Old Testament really happen? Does our faith really rest on that? That's, we'll just go to that because Michael, what you just said, I want to push back on. I think if you start saying, well, that didn't really happen that way, or I don't need it to have happened that way, where does that stop? You're like, what do you need to be what we are calling a miracle? You said- well, yeah, e evangelicals, right, would say there's like these five things that they have to believe in. Uh, and forgive me, I'm going to say those. I'm going to say five things and not be able to name all five of them, right? I think like the virgin birth, uh, the miracles. Help me, help me, evangelicals in this in this group thread. Paul Taylor. Um, well, I, everything you're, I feel like so far, everything you're going to say is just also basic to like historic Christianity. So I wouldn't limit it to evangelicals, right? I'd say okay. Catholics and Orthodox would say that probably right. This, this wasn't on my application 
for evangelical Christianity, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't even know what Bob you're talking oh, about. Oh, you signed in the dotted uh, the dotted line of the blood of Christ. You did, Taylor. Um, yeah, right. So, like, I, like, I, I there's there's. I mean, if I went through them, like, in my opinion, there there's there's one for me suspended reality that really comes into like factor at the very end of the day and it's do i believe that christ was both human and divine and was resurrected on the third day for me the uh, the other miracles that we see i i pray one day when i reach heaven god in christ will tell me yeah all that stuff happened but does it break my does it break my let me finish does it break my christian faith if i if i don't have uh, if if those things didn't happen, if Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a fish or whale, that does it is it going to break up my belief in a higher being in God and Christ? No, um, that, you know, uh, it, it, so, so like I, I'm hopeful, like I am, but it's not a deal breaker for me. And uh, the, the the New Testament miracles and the Old Testament miracles, like there's some beauty in those at its core and i like trust and hope they are true but if i find out they are not it does not deter from my christian belief or and i don't think it delegitimizes de uh, de it either okay so you said uh, you know i'm going to push back on this how could i not you said that you know if you get to heaven and christ tells you that they really happen but i think he already did tell you i think the bible is god through the writing of men telling us things that happened. And I think the miracles of the Old Testament, if if they, well, I'll say this, Jesus believed them, right? And if Jesus, you believe, really was God and really did die, what would keep you from believing those Old Testament things that are told to us in scripture? Like, what do you have to gain from not believing them? Yeah, I would say that I, I actually have the same starting point, Michael, and that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian because I believe it's true that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And therefore, I, I think that as far as the sayings of Jesus can can be reliably um, transmitted to me, as, as reliable as those are, then I, then I take very seriously what those sayings um, entail. And it seems to me that you do get a lot of miracles thrown in. If, if we accept that uh, the, the sayings of Jesus that we have in the New Testament are, in fact, reliable. I, I'm wondering if, if what Michael was saying, I'm wondering if there are two different questions here. That one is what faith in Jesus logically should entail, which I think Sarah and Taylor are talking about, and Michael talking about what's a deal breaker. So... I mean, when I was, I was converted, I was converted from atheism. So I had no Bible background. I didn't know, I don't think I knew about Jonah being swallowed or uh, I, I probably, I don't even think I, I don't know. Oh no, no, I probably had heard of the, the, the Red Sea because I think I'd probably seen the movie, but anyway. Um, yeah, but, Prince of Egypt is beautiful. <laughs> really well done. Not, no, before Prince of Egypt, yeah. No, I would, yeah. Oh, I'm really old. I'm old. But um, Ten Commandments, the first version. So, but um, what converted me 
I mean, I just had the basic gospel message that converted me. So I assumed with that, that the whole package was true, but I didn't know what the whole package contained at that point. And, and I, don't, I don't believe I wasn't converted until I knew oh, all the details. No, for yeah. sure. And, and let me be clear. I think Michael Jarbo and I are gonna have so much fun in heaven when he finds out all the ways I was right and he was wrong. I'm joking, I'm joking. We're both wrong, I'm sure, on various things. I think Michael Jarbo is a Christian, but I think we, we disagree on this. So I don't think it's a deal breaker, but I still would love to hear, Michael, what, what you have to gain because you're representing a lot of what I hear. It's not just you. I hear so many people say, my faith doesn't live or die on this. And it's okay if I get to heaven and I was wrong, which is fine, but like, why, why start there? I don't know if I start there. Um, like, like, so like, if the donkey didn't really talk to Balaam, mm -hmm. Shit, I, I, it's like it doesn't it doesn't break up my faith. And for me, I, I just think in in a lot of the, I mean, it like you talk about a leap of faith. It takes a leap of faith to tr to believe in Jesus and to believe in what Christ did for us on the cross on the cross and to make that connection. And for, for me, that's one of the biggest leaps that you can take. But some of the some of the supernatural pieces uh in yes uh right i mean dr keener told incredible stories about people who had died for a while and they come back right but uh what is it resuscitation it's not the same as resurrection and we can get those confused sometimes my mom's a school nurse my mom's a school nurse and she a, a girl had fallen on the ground and had passed out and my mom said when she walked up to her body she uh uh, was she was gone and she performed CPR and after the fourth time she began to breathe again and my mom swears that was the renewing moment of her faith do I negate any of that of my mom no and I value her worth in seeing that as a miracle do, do I value those who see the Red Sea or or Balaam's uh, and a donkey speaking to him uh, those who, who value it yes but I don't think it's for me, um, like I don't have to suspend all of that reality mm -hmm. to 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 get, to get there. But get there. To, I'm not just talking about my like. I'm not talking about soteriology or like. I'm just talking about like getting there in the suspended reality that I think is necessary for myself to to reach for for faith. Yeah, and I'll tell you the stories that we can take from that. And the lessons to deepen our faith in God are as good as gold to me. So like what we learn, what we witness about God's covenant with the Israelites in some of those moments helps to paint the better picture for us today mm -hmm. rather than me debate or stress about if I don't fully believe this, is that what will uh, detour me from fully living into my call as a a follower of God in Christ. Yeah, and and I promise we're not going to stay on this forever. I'm about to put another question, but I just want to react to one thing, and then Michael, you can feel free to react back. Th to compare the story of your mom's, you know, telling you the story, and like, do I believe it exactly as you said it? it? It doesn't matter because for her, it was it was transformative, right? But your mom is not God breathed scripture, so I do think there's a difference between. I hear people tell stories of miracles all the time, and I constantly am like, okay, maybe maybe that happened. I don't know if it did or not. And if, if it changed them, great.
But when I read scripture, if it says that Balaam's donkey talked, and that was a pretty surprising thing to happen that changed the course of the story, I don't know what I would have to gain by saying, I don't think that's true. I would think the default position would be to read it and think that's, it's a truth because it's in scripture. Can I just add something here? I think part of what I hear from Michael is there's a difference between looking at this academically and looking at this pastorally. So if you've been a pastor of a church, you've been with people who've had their prayers unanswered. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been with people who've prayed for miracles and not received a miracle. And that's part of the undertone of everything that's, of all the conversation that's happening here. And you can say, there are logical arguments for all of these, um, but there is a certain kind of visceral unfairness in my kid died and your kid lived. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's part of what's kind of undergirding the things that are being said. Um, And I think it's a reality that we all have to, you know, I found myself thinking a whole lot about why miracles happen when they do, both in scripture and when we see them today, it's predominantly not in the United States, predominantly not, it's predominantly in Africa and Latin America and places like that. And I found myself thinking a whole lot, um, but it doesn't make it any easier. Yes, my child is contributing to the conversation. Doesn't make it any easier. Oh, that was me, sorry. (laughs) um, To pray with a family in an ICU and to have a miracle not happen. And, And I think, I think that experience needs to inform our conversation because that's, that's a part of the story also. And, I, and in my head, I would say miracles happen in scriptures so that people would believe, not so that someone would have a healing. No, and I, it, doesn't, it doesn't make it any easier. I completely understand. And as you know, I prayed for a miracle with my brother that didn't happen. So I'm well aware of being on the real crappy end of that dialogue. To me, that makes the miracles in the Bible all that much more powerful because they point to, they, they're a beginning sort of foretaste to the day that everything will work and that my people like my brother won't die, you know? So I, yeah, it doesn't, those two things don't, it doesn't make me feel better about me not getting the miracle to, to say, well, maybe the stuff in the Old Testament was just kind of allegory. To me, that actually helps me think, okay, one day, things will be better. But anyway, Michael, I, I wanted to give you one more chance. If you wanted to say something else on this, you don't have to, but before we go on, I didn't want you to not get another word when in. I'm the, when I'm in hospital rooms, as Meredith speaks about, it's it's not the Red Sea I talk about. <laughs> of course. It's not, it's, it's not Balaam and that damn donkey. It's not, uh, it's not even the virgin birth. Mm-hmm. For me, it, it's the resurrection of Christ. And that's, the, I think, Sarah, that's the overarching image right i mean if it, it, as as christians to hold on to that that's our true for me that's the biggest miracle of them all and yeah i got someone say that cre- creation was the biggest miracle but when again it, that's not what i'm telling in those hospital settings and so mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah and, it, and like again it's it's not a well okay no it, you can go oh, you can finish i was just agreeing no, yeah i think i'm good Okay, well, we all agree the resurrection is kind of a pivotal miracle. So let's do this. We've got a question. We had two questions that came in that were really personal. They're from somebody that has followed Dr. Keener for a long time. And um, 
And so the question is for him, but everyone feel free to, to weigh in. This is sort of miracle adjacent. Here it is. It said, um, he couldn't remember, but in one of Dr. Keener's interviews or books, uh, he mentions being under spiritual attack. Does a quote, spiritual attack look like depression? How can you differentiate this from some natural caused depression? Does it look like mental questioning? Is it either or? Just your thoughts on how to recognize, oh, this person just wants your thoughts on how to recognize when we are under spiritual attack and how to deal with it would be great. I'm not gonna read that again, but the person is basically asking the difference between spiritual attack and sort of run of the mill natural depression and maybe how do you know the difference and I think, of course, because we're talking about natural and supernatural, that's kind of why this question made it in. And you may not want mm -hmm. to share that. That's okay. My most concise answer would be, I do not know. But <laughs> um, to obfuscate like a good scholar, um, the, the, I think the actual context of when I was talking about that was um, in the process of making a, a different point about uh, something that's even more controversial than miracles. So I don't want to go into all that, but um, well, I, I guess I have to go into it to answer the question. <laughs> but in the Bible, God isn't the only spiritual reality. There are, there are other spirits as well. And <clears throat> that, that act actually also may have something to do with a lot of the evil and suffering in the world that we, we talk about as well. But how you know it's whether whether it's a coordinated thing or whether it's just you know this happens because this is the way the world works. I mean, um, in the book of Job, the reader we get to find out that there's this thing going on spiritually behind the scenes, but Job didn't didn't know about it and. So sometimes I think we don't know. The, the way that I was able to know in the case that I would have been talking about was that um, something else similar to that, I'm being vague, happened the next day. And then the third day, after we thought it was, it was all done, um, my wife and I went out for a walk and there was a tree that was about three stories tall. I have pictures of it, but we stopped under the tree. No sooner did we stepped out from under the tree, then it just split at the bottom. It didn't even uproot. It came crashing down right where we'd been standing. Uh, and you might say that's an anti-miracle or whatever, because <laughs> there were hundreds of trees in view. It's the only one that came crashing down. It was right where we'd been standing. Um, we had just come back from Congo, and there were people who were practicing some spiritual things that were not Christian, who did not like us. And I don't like to stick my neck out on affirming. Well, it's one thing for me to affirm God, God's miracles. It's another thing for me to stick my neck out on behalf of the other side. And I don't know if I want to do that. But anyway, but that was the context of it. That, yes, I do believe in other spiritual realities, um, but they're really not as fun to talk about or as pleasant. Sure. No, and I mean, you're in good company. I think we all believe in, in a spiritual realm and there are those that are sort of on, on the good side and those that are the fallen angels. So, um, 
Did anybody else maybe want to say anything about sort of the difference between spiritual attack and depression that we consider, you know, natural as this person's words? I'll just say a practical note. I, I will say that the line between natural and supernatural gets blurred quite a bit for the believer. And I will say whatever works, works. And I know people who have dealt with their very natural depression very effectively by thinking of it as demonic attack, whether or not that's actually true. And they, they would acknowledge that. They would say, I don't know if this is actually true, but this is the way I'm thinking about it. And it worked for them. Um, and it, that's not to say I don't believe in demonic attack, but I, I, I believe that um, there are a whole lot of gray lines here. And, and you kind of find what works, what is most effective in your circumstance. And so um, if you have a very natural doctor prescribed chronic depression that has very natural chemical um, circumstances and you still find that it works better for you to to think about it as you're being attacked by an enemy I think that's I think that's fine because I I, I could see in some grand scale like you're being like that is that is part of the fallen world that you're experiencing um, and so I I I think there's a whole lot of gray area here and I think there's a whole lot of room for people to figure out um, what their role in that gray area is. I don't know if that actually makes sense, but. Which I, I, I just like, I'm so fascinated by Dr. Keener. Like, it, I feel like miracles in general are gray air, is a gray area. And to do so much work and research on it is, is commendable. It's just, uh, man, I just, what a fascinating subject to really dive deep in. So just kudos. Yeah. Yeah, just. Well, second on the kudos and Meredith. I, I I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dr. Keener. No, I was just going to say, when I was answering the question, I just had in mind the, the context of my own comment. But I do want to say I agree with, with Meredith on this and uh, also with her earlier comments. But um, I mean, it's not always an either or. It can be spiritual and something else. But sometimes it's just you know, it can be chemical, it can be physiological, and, you know, whatever, whatever works is, is yeah, I agree. So um, I, I was actually kind of on that same line, and I was going to say that it doesn't have to be either or, it, it can be both. Uh, I, I do believe that, but I think we, we have to be careful to stop short of saying, well, it's not true, but it's helpful for you to believe it. And so that's fine. Um, I, I think we have to be really careful about how far we take that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I would hate for others to extrapolate from that, you know, we say it's okay in this one area to it's okay, you know, to think, you know what, Jesus didn't really die for the uh, rise from the dead, but the important thing is this, this, and this. And I, I understand that's what, not what anybody's putting forward. But um, I, I think that we're called to be, you know, lovers of truth. And, you know, I'm not interested in, you know, useful fiction and that kind of thing um, personally. So that's, that's the, the line that I would draw there. So Taylor, I would completely agree with you. I would say in a broader sense, though, 
any brokenness we deal with is a is a result of the fall and so however you're defining attack by the enemy i think we could make an argument there that it looks I, i'm not i'm not interested in, we, in weaving sweet fictions for people mm. either um but i think broke brokenness as a result of living in a fallen world takes different manifestations for different people. And whether we think it's active demonic activity or whether we think it's just the effects of living in a fallen world, both are contrary to God. Um, and I think both I could make a reasonable argument. Of yeah, and I would, I would agree with that. You know, and my, my objection would kind of go away and stated as, as you just did, uh, because <clears throat> both of those things also have a spiritual component to it. Um, I mean, living in a fallen world is not an intelligible thing to say unless there is a spiritual component uh unless there's a right way that we're supposed to live or a right way that the world is supposed to be i'm going to move us on we're going back to the bible back to the ot we don't really have a lot of dr keener i think you're i know you said call you craig i'm having such a hard time calling you craig um tell us again the name of your book the two volume it's like miracles evidence for tell us the title of it again He's going to bust it out. No, uh, miracles, the credibility of the New Testament accounts. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the publisher usually has input in the titles. So sometimes I forget the names of the titles because they're not always the ones I came up with. But <laughs> well, uh, I will tell you. That happens to me all the time. Oh, my stupid publishers. Stop. <laughs> it will one day. I think everybody on this panel ought to be published. Um, because, and so I'm just, it's interesting to me that all of the questions about actual events from the Bible so far that have come in have been about Old Testament, maybe because they're, I, I don't know, they're harder to believe, I guess, for some reason, but this is, this one made which me- Which is crazy to me. What? Like, which is odd to me. I mean, like the New Testament's miracles are like as, you know, as bizarre and unlikely and as, as miraculous, right? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, spitting in the dirt and making someone go from blind to being able to see is pretty cool. Yeah, coming um, back from the dead's a big one. I'm, I, I give the people what they want. I'm putting their questions out here. So here's the next one. And I already know I'm going to be in the minority on this. It says, why do people seem to have such an issue with Jonah? Why, why do people seem to have such an issue with Jonah? So, of course, uh, if you're watching, you probably know this from being a little kid, even if you're not a crest. Christian, that there's this story in the Old Testament about a guy named Jonah who was swallowed by a whale. I mean, a big fish, big fish. Uh, and many people, of course, think it's a, an allegory, but many people think it really happened. And I, I think if we were to take a vote here, I would be in the minority on this one. But why do you guys think that's the one that seems to have the most pushback on? Because within the book itself, it seems to imply that it's a parable because anyone with a liberal arts degree reading that book notices that the language is different, the imagery is different. It is not written as, as a historical book the way that the other books are written. That's why people have an issue with, it's not because we think that like Jonah being swallowed by a big fish is more of a miracle than being raised from the dead. It's not. Hmm. It's because Jonah starts in a different way. There once was a man who lived in the land. Like it's, it's a different, it's a different genre. It's a different genre. It seems to be a different genre of book. And so taking the Bible as the appropriate genre seems to me core in interpreting, interpreting the Bible accurately. 
And I'll say this, our resident normal, most sort of conservative voice on this panel, Evan McClanahan, even he thinks it's a parable. I'm like, I'm, there's no one on my team on this one. I will, uh, here's a question I'll throw in as a, a secondary question to why do people have such an issue with Jonah is Christ references that. I guess you could say he's referencing a parable, but you know, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the son of man will be. Uh, does that not lend any credibility to it? Is anyone on my side here is what I'm saying? Sarah, yeah, Sarah, maybe the question needs to be turned back around to you. Why do you believe it actually happened? Bible says it. I no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I mean, that, that sounds like what you're saying. Well, that's the beginning. And then when someone says, well, let's read it as this kind of genre. I'm, I will say this. I'm open to Jonah being a parable. Um, and, it, and I could be convinced of that. Uh, when we had Elisa Childers on the um, podcast, we something came up about this and she gave kind of an interesting answer. She said, I think it's funny that people's first reaction is to downplay the miracle of it um, or to say it's a parable when there's something so powerful about the fact that the Ninevites viewed uh, one of their idols, one of their false gods was around fish because they were a fishing community. And so the, the fish god or whatever of course was something they worshiped and so how powerful would it have been if a fish spat out a prophet onto the land to to represent god and of course we know that the ninevites really did listen when when jonah spoke and um and they're like one of only two books of the bible where the prophet went to a non uh israelite audience is that right um so i mean i i think there's something cool there i I guess I'm going to believe it unless it's proven otherwise to me. Jonah is mentioned in uh, in Kings, so it's not it's not a question about whether the um, the figure existed, mm -hmm. and as to whether it's possible. I mean, we're not assuming like an ordinary sea creature. It says God specially created this one. He created the vine that. Yeah. Uh, Jonah took shelter over. I mean, that, that wording is used a few different times in the book. So um, the issue would have to just come down to, to the question of the literary genre of the work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I almost don't want to spend more time on this only because that seems to be the issue, right? That everyone sort of agrees on. I, I, if I believe, I mean, like, I believe that God could have done this clearly. I mean, he done everything else he raised someone from the dead he created something from nothing like this isn't an impossibility or a difficult thing for god to do or even that strange um given all the other strange things god does like um so it's a question of i think as uh, dr keener said the, the literary genre is it intended right but I, I have to say like as far as biblical criticism goes maybe i'm the most well positioned to represent the lay person in this area and um i i don't think from my conversations that the normal person says, oh, well, I don't believe in that because of the literary genre. The you know, folks that haven't really studied this, it just seems incredible. And I, and I think that if the talking donkey were, were as famous as Jonah, maybe that would be the one that people are stuck on the most. Uh, these things just do seem incredible. And so, you know, for me, uh, kind of like you were saying, Paul, uh, it's, it's not that I don't believe that it can happen. Um, I I, I think that my default position is is really one more of skepticism, but um, I, I, if it seems so incredible to me, then 
the more likely thing for me to do would be to turn and look at, well, what is the genre here? And am, am I expected to believe this literally? And then, you know, if, if I am and there's some substantial, you know, uh, evidence, say if Jesus believed it, um, then I would have to take it seriously. For sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, the question then is, does Jesus's reference of it imply? His yeah, certainly. It, which is yep. not necessarily the case, but. Yep. Yeah. And let me say, Jonah chapter three, verse one is my favorite scripture in the entire, in the entire Bible. That's awesome. I have a, I have a tattoo on my arm of, of, I can't pull my arm up. I can't put my seat because of my guns. I can't put my seat up all the way. It's a nice shirt, man. Don't rip it by flexing. Um, Jonah 3 1 says, and God spoke to Jonah a second time. Uh, or and God spoke to Jonah again. And it's it's Jonah's story. It, ah, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. The importance is the imagery and the 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 power of of the narrative to show that God still speaks to people who run away from God. Well, and and what Michael just said. So Michael, you said it doesn't matter with it, if it's real or not. I would rephrase that to say that the story is still like narrative is powerful, even if it's not literally historical. And to my mind, the greatest miracle of Jonah is not the whole fish thing. It's the repentance of the Ninevites. Y'all, that's the most successful revival in the history of the world. He preaches one servant and the Ninevites all repent and it's never happened again. And like, and it's just, I love Jonah. I love Jonah so much. And, it, and I, don't, I don't think it's historical and I don't think it makes it less important for the fact that it's not historical. And that's not to say, like, I realize, like, Sarah, you would look at that and you'd say that's a slippery slope down to the resurrection. And I see those as two different genres of, like, the resurrection texts are clearly meant to be interpreted historically. And then also have this whole other spiritual um, side that gets interpreted in addition to the histor historicity. I don't see, jo I don't see Jean Jonah as the same genre. I just, I just don't. And I, I, um, I see the same thing with Job. I see the same thing with a, a couple of different places in, in the Old Testament. Um, and it's, in some ways, it actually matters more to me because I'm an English major and I'm weird like that. And, um, but it, it, I don't, I don't think that, I think if we get caught, get caught up in the historicity of the text, we miss the import of what the texts are actually trying to get across. And I'm fine with that. I mean, I, I love the way Paul Copan talks about taking, reading the, the Bible literarily. So assessing the genre and reading for it what it is. Um, and, and we can also agree to disagree. That's what we do so well on this. I'm gonna move us on to another question, especially because I think the whole world agrees with not me and that's fine. <laughs> that is totally fine. Okay, question is, isn't it presumptuous or greedy to pray for a miracle? And then we also had a question, maybe Haley can send this in to me if she's still listening, but I can't get back to it on Facebook, but somebody asked something along the lines of like, can we get to the point where we're praying for miracles so much that that becomes unhealthy? And there are churches that do that. They seem to put such an emphasis on praying for miracles that maybe they're like not spending time doing things like worship or serving or whatever. So but I can't find the exact way the person worded it. So I don't want to misrepresent, but this person said, isn't it presumptuous or greedy to pray for a miracle? 
I don't see how or why, um, but I, maybe my intellectual and moral laziness. Um, no, I don't think it's greedy to pray for a miracle. I had, to pray for God to act. No, I don't believe that's lazy or presumptuous. So I had church, so this is going to kind of get me into the. Jarbo, uh, are you going to be controversial? Uh, me? No. Um, no, I, I, I had a church member call me one night while I was driving, and I was like, it's weird that this guy's calling me so late. And I answered the phone call. I was like, hey, how are you? He goes, man, I, I have a very weird thought I need to speak to you about. And I go, okay, cool. And he said, I went to my friend's father's funeral today. I go, that sounds pretty normal. Okay, we're on, we're on schedule here. He goes, but I thought during the funeral, you know, a couple months ago, this friend who we met in youth group when we were long, when we were old, when we were younger, asked me, will you pray for my dad who had this terminal illness and pray and pray for a mere, like pray for him to be healed, which sounds miraculous. And he said to me, Michael, I never prayed. I never prayed for him in my heart. And he said, me not praying did me not praying not help to save this man? And what I'm saying is I'm getting, my, I'm digging myself in because I don't, I don't know how they, I don't know how they answer that question. And I, that, I mean, I think it was like early, I mean, year one or two in my ministry, and I fumbled through it. And, and my, uh, my mentor in the ordination process, Meredith, um, thankfully wasn't there on the other side of the phone to hear me. But um, uh, I. I it, it, that's a hard thing to navigate. That's such an incredible question because I don't know. I mean, like, I don't think him not praying affected the medical diagnosis that happened and occurred. But I wonder if then, then what it, does this beg another question, Paul? Am I now going to get kind of in the, in the weeds here? What does praying do? Mm hmm is is prayer for the is prayer for the heart and the soul or does prayer actually change god's mind or does god can we change ah uh, or are we uh, can we change the diagnosis is that disconnected from god okay so we're getting into will see that's what happened i'm in the weeds i'm controversial paul forgive me brother I don't know we weeds. talk is you're in the weeds you got there no yeah I mean, you have that passage in James that talks about the prayer of a righteous man. I was trying to look it up. Uh, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So then, yeah, I mean, listen, every time I pray for a miracle and it doesn't happen, I think probably because I wasn't righteous enough, which of course is a, it's clear. Yeah, I think that's the thing that we have to stop short of saying is that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't pray hard enough or I didn't do it right or whatever, but it, just kind of returning to the original question, is it presumptuous or, or greedy to pray for a miracle? I've, you know, I've asked that question of myself a lot. And then what I noticed was that I was always trying to pray for the right things. And along the way, at some point, I started saying things to God that weren't true. Like they, they weren't things that I really felt. And I, I thought about the irony of lying to a God that already knows everything. And so if, you know, if he already knows me completely and knows my thoughts, and he wants me to pray, then he probably just wants me to come to him and say whatever is true, you know, whatever is true about me in that moment, whatever it is that I'm thinking. And come to think of it, that's what I want my children to do. Mm. So I, that, that's kind of the way I think about prayer um, is that, you know, you might as well not hold back 
<laughs> Tell him what you're thinking. He already knows. We, we aren't the we aren't the ones who heal anybody. We aren't the ones who do the miracles. We can just ask, but there's nothing wrong with asking. I do see in the Gospels um, some positive models for asking and some negative models for asking. I'm, I'm working on Mark right now. And, and just, um, you've got a, a couple people who, you have Jesus say to, to blind Bartimaeus, what is it that you want me to do for you? And he wants to, he says, I want, I want to receive my sight. And so Jesus um, gives him his sight. But you also have uh, earlier in the same chapter, I think maybe a paragraph or two before that, you have James and John and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus says, what is it you want to want me to do? We want to be, we want to be the greatest in your kingdom on either side of you. And Jesus is like, he, he, he uh, in, in Matthew 7 and Luke 11, Jesus talks about how we can uh, ask and seek and knock and our heavenly father won't, uh, you know, if we, if we ask for bread, he won't give us a stone. On the other hand, if we, if we ask for a stone, then say he's going to give us a stone um, that he, yeah, we have certain models of certain kind of requests that are, are things that we should ask for. And what happens then once we ask, it's up to, it's up to God. But um, we also have some models of things that we shouldn't ask for. And those are the ones, maybe it would be presumptuous, but but not, not where it's for somebody's good. Or we, we, if we believe it's for somebody's good, um, we're not in charge, but I think we're, we do the right thing to, to go ahead and ask. I like, I like appealing to scripture for sort of the guidelines of what's sort of okay and maybe a little- Well, he did explicitly tell us how to pray as well in, in the yeah. Lord's Prayer. But um, I, I think that, that while that's certainly true, I, I, um, I think one one thing that maybe I read into the question is um, that the the current condition of our heart is not sufficient to come before the Lord and, and just say what it is. Um, so yeah, certainly there's a there's a right way to ask and uh, there's there's a way to pray, um, but but I don't think it's it, it should go to the extent where we're you know saying things or that aren't true or holding back things that um that are the just the condition of our heart okay i'm going to try to squeeze two more questions and one of these is sort of two questions in one so really three questions in before we have to end and then michael jarbo i'm going to ask if you'll pray us out at the end if you're cool with that you moved me with that jonah thing so okay um this question is a question from someone on facebook and a question that was texted into me that i've combined it says, are the reports or belief in miracles most prevalent in third world countries where the application of modern medical science are not as available? Would you agree that most of the true miracles today are those of modern medical science? And then somebody else asked, and has science shown that miracles are impossible? So the first question is about, does it seem like the bulk of miracles today have to do with this medical science, like people being healed, I guess is the question. Maybe I'm putting words in this person's mouth. And then somebody else says, has science shown that miracles impossible? I would just direct that person back to 
the beginning presentation that Craig gave us. What do you guys think? Well, I have a response to the first question, but since it's mostly adapted from Dr. Keener's work, I should probably let him. <laughs> well, the one point that I was going to make was that, um, yes, miracle reports are more common in less developed parts of the world, but so is revival. So, you know, which, where is the, the causation, you know, which, you know, which thing do we think is primary there? I'll stop with that. Sounds like Ninevites to me. Just saying. We, we, we do, I think there are a number of factors for um, where we see the most miracles. In the gospels and acts where we see them uh, most often and most consistently, it's where the, the message of the kingdom is breaking through um, in new ways. It's, it's breaking new ground. And I think we see that a lot of the places where they seem to happen more consistently, where like in one place, it's like the majority of deaf people that prayed for have been healed. Mm. That's really unusual here. <laughs> but that uh, that's also a place where there are no churches already, you know, and so the, the good news is, is going forth. God is showing himself in a special way. We already have a bunch of gifts here. And uh, that's another factor. Many of my friends in Africa say, uh, well, yeah, we, we have miracles happen, but, you know, you need to thank God that you have medical technology because, I mean, we have we have to pray for the miracles because we desperately need them. I look at how Jesus multiplied the fishes and loaves and then said, gather up the fragments that remain. They wouldn't need a miracle for their next meal. Um, so he doesn't do the miracles just for our entertainment. He does them where they're desperately needed. And, you know, in Africa, maybe you see more miracles, but infant mortality, maternal mortality, in many places is still 10 times what it is in most of the US. Jesus' miracles show us not just about God's power, but they show us about his heart of compassion. They show us what he cares about. So things like healing, deliverance, um, safety. I mean, the still in the storm was about safety. That, that whether by natural means or by prayer or both, those are the kinds of things that, that we should we should be working for uh, in this in this world. I'm, I'm ADHD. That's one thing I haven't been healed of. So uh, I, I I sometimes go off topic and then hopefully come mm. back to it. But no, I think that was a beautiful answer. That he he goes where the need is, and I mean not he goes where the need is. The need is everywhere when you're talking about spiritual things, but. I think about all the stories we hear coming out of the Middle East right now about people having visions and dreams um, and being saved. I mean, so many people coming to faith in Christ because that's sort of the miracle du jour that's happening there. And then you hear about medical miracles in places where, you know, science is nowhere near where it is in the States. So yeah, I love that answer. Does anybody else want to weigh in on the sort of science versus miracles kind of thing? We have one more question. So I have, sorry. Paul, are you saying something? After you, it was me. I have something to add to that. And as I'm speaking, I have all of the alarms standing in my head about um, 
all of the fake kind of miracle factories that are out there that we we <laughs> we have reason to be um, suspicious suspicious of. But I do think just from a, there's a, there's a good deal of literature out there on this. Um, but I've also just seen it in my personal experience. There is something just in the human experience of when you stop expecting, so, if you stop thinking something is even possible, um, if you step out of the, into the worldview where, where God could not possibly do something, God tends not to do something. Um, and there are all kinds of things we can make of that. Um, the atheists would look at that and they would say, well, it's because the Christians were just ma making things up. And the Christians would look at it and say, well, there is something to do with belief. And, um, you know, in Acts, there are so many times when they say, do you believe? And if you believe, God does something. If you don't believe, God doesn't do something. And I, I, I completely realize, as I say that, alarms are going off in my head about <laughs> people believe and they still don't have things done for them but i do think that there is an element and this this is what i want to say there is an element where if we make a complete worldview shift to scientific materialism we will fail to notice god when god does act and we might shut off the ways in which god wants to act within our lives and i think that's what large portions of the first world have done and I use first world in quotation marks because that's some person decided that there was a first world and a third world and they had a PhD and that's why that that got delineated that way. Um, but I, yeah. I have seen within my own life that um, there is a sort of a cultural elite mentality of um, scientific materialism that that says God cannot work this way. And then God doesn't. And then within, when Acts, we say, we see this question, do you believe? As this preemptive of, if you do believe in God, it's this invitation for God to act. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there is something involved in general terms, obviously with all the caveats of, I don't, there are lots of abuses and there are lots of uh, charlatans and there are lots of naysayers all of those things with uh, with all those caveats I do think there is an element of belief of expectation of participation that is somehow a part of God performing miracles yeah we only have a couple I, left so if you're gonna be quick go and then we're gonna okay well, I, I wanted to start just by uh, agreeing that if you start with the presupposition that, that miracles can't happen, then you've ruled out the truth in advance in the, in the event that a miracle actually does take place. Uh, so, um, yeah, definitely, I, I, I think there's a problem there. But just more fundamentally, you know, science is a tool for investigating and exploring the natural world. So in principle, it can't rule out the possibility of a miracle because a miracle, by any definition, is not, an, uh, not a natural event. Uh, and so I, I think that the claim that science disproves miracles is actually question begging. Uh, it's, it's a circular argument because science could only show that miracles are impossible if there was nothing outside of nature. Mm -hmm. But that's the very question that the scientist has 
or the scientific materialist has purported to have solved. So they, they're starting out by assuming what they're trying to prove. Okay, I want to do two things. I'm gonna ask our last question, which is gonna probably have to be just a yes or no from each of you. I think someone heard me say we weren't talking about the New Testament enough, so they texted this in. But I'm glad that Meredith brought up this idea of there are a lot of claims of miracles that aren't miracles. So I just want to make sure you know that Theology on Tap does not think that every time Benny Hinn blew on people and they were falling out crazy, all that kind of business. Uh, it's lack of mouthwash. No, sorry. Yeah, it, that's its own thing that we are not espousing. Um, and if you want more information on that, I highly recommend the movie uh, American Gospel. It goes into all that kind of stuff about you know what's real and what's just tricking people, which is really gross. But here's our last question for the night. Um, and since it's Christmassy, I saved it to the end so we could go out on a Christmassy note. Do you all really believe Mary was a virgin? Not forever, we're not getting into the whole perpetual virginity thing, but just, was she a virgin yes. uh, when she had Jesus? Paul says yes. Yes. You asked for a simple yes or no, so yeah, I'm gonna say yes. Well, if anybody wants to say something quickly, we have two minutes. Well, I see nothing in the narrative that indicates to me that it's not, um, you know, a, a historical narrative. So, and then based on the evidence that Christ is who he claimed to be, I would conclude that yes, Mary was a virgin. We can work backwards from from Christ to well, then we have to believe that part. Yeah, Mary. I will say yes while also saying that I don't necessarily agree with the various theologies that have gone into women's virginity that have subsequently followed from that but yes yeah. I'll, like, I'll say yes without, for you know, yeah we don't need to get into all that business but yes hmm. all right I'll say, I'll say yes because I feel like I'm the most Christian during Advent oh I, I'm with you on that I think we share that in common I feel very spiritually soft at this time of year yeah what? But if, but if she wasn't, it's not a deal breaker. Okay, bye. <laughs> okay, well, listen, I want to thank uh, Craig, Dr. Keener, for coming out. Thank you so much. This was such a treat for us. And I will be emailing you later to see if I can convince you to come on the podcast and answer the unanswered questions. But um, for now, thank you for joining us tonight. If you have more questions, you can always text this number. You can always comment on Facebook. You can contact us by going to houstontot.com. And of course, we always encourage you to listen to the podcast. We put out weekly content, which we think is pretty fun. Um, but Michael, would you mind just closing us out in prayer and then we will say Merry Christmas and good night? Sure, absolutely. And the, the prayer I'm going to use is some, as a poem, actually, from its start. And I, I heard it read at the beginning of this Advent season, this preparation and waiting for this miraculous moment of Christ being born into our world of God putting on human flesh and coming into the world, not through a warrior, not through someone strong or powerful, but through a baby and infant. And yet in its weakness, we see great strength, divine strength, I would say. It's a, it's a poem by Jan Richardson named, uh, Blessed Are You Who Bear the Light. And I wanna leave that as sort of a benediction for us as we go uh, from that. Cause I think all of us are light bearers and in a way that is a miracle, especially in 2020. And so ascending uh, off of as a, a last TOT of um, a last TOT of 2020. Here we go. Um, so may you receive this benediction today. Blessed are you who bear the light, 
in unbearable times, who testified to its endurance amid the unendurable, who bear witness to its persistence when everything seems in shadow and grief. Blessed are you in whom the light lives, in whom the brightness blazes, your heart a chapel, an altar where in the deepest night can be seen the fire that shines forth in you in unaccountable faith, in stubborn hope, in love that illumines every broken thing it finds. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you guys in 2021. Thanks, everybody.